This one goes out for Matt Penfield, wherever he is. Welcome into another episode of Lonely Town of Killers podcast with Jimmy and Derek. Our guest this week needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyways. He's been on MTV, been the host of 120 Minutes, uh, TRL. He had his own segment called Stump Matt. He's a celebrity deathmatch winner, numerous TV and radio shows. Uh, he's a living musical uh, music encyclopedia. He's wrote a best-selling book entitled All These Things That I've Done, My Insane, Improbable Rock Life, which I'm definitely sure we're going to get into. And uh, he won the International Rock Award uh, in 2022. And he currently has a, a radio program on 95.5 KL, KLOS, and probably like a ton of other things I left out there, but uh, we're really uh, super excited to be talking with Matt Pinfield this week. Matt, thanks for coming on and talking with us. Right, thanks for having me. Good, great to see you guys here. Nice to catch up with you guys. Yeah, it's uh, it's been kind of surreal. You're one of those kids or one of those guys we watched growing up, um, you know, just being around and interested in music. You were on MTV, VH1. Uh, we actually ran into you once in Universal Studios when we were on our senior class trip. So... Uh, to be able to be talking with you, texting with you, setting all this up. It's kind of been surreal for both of us. So uh, really excited to talk with you. Guys, it's my pleasure. You know, it's um, I love it that you have a, a podcast about the killers. I mean, again, they're an important part of my life and a band that I, I truly love. I mean, they're as far as bands that are out right now that are been, you know, going uh, for as long as the guys have been going now, you know, over 20 years, uh, I love the guys, and it's been an incredible journey, and it's great to still call those guys my friends. It's funny. My girlfriend was uh, uh, out and ran into Mark. Mark was actually in the, her box um, with their mutual friend watching New Order and Pet Shop Boys while I was on the road doing, hosting another festival somewhere. She's like, hey, Mark from the Killers is in the, is it, is in the box and says hello. I'm like, oh, yeah, Mark's great. I haven't seen him in quite a long time. So it was up uh, north of... Uh, San Francisco Bay when I was living up there. Me and uh, Braden Merrick, their old manager, went up there and we, we had dinner with them one night. So it was really cool. And we, uh, you know, I just love those guys. Always will. And uh, so when you asked me to talk about the killers, you know, it's, it's kind of an important thing for me because I think that they're truly one of the greatest bands um, of, I mean, that came out in this century and uh, certainly love them. So that's that part of it has never stopped, and I'm always excited when they put out new music, and uh, just so great grateful that I've had such a good relationship with those guys all these years. So let's go back to the beginning. When were you first introduced to the Killers? How did you guys meet, and how did the how did the story kick off there? Well, it's pretty amazing, guys. You know, for me, uh, I'll never forget it because I happened to be at this point in time. I was doing a lot of things. I'd come back from doing that TV show Farm Club on USA Network for Jimmy Iovine. And that was a show, you know, it featured everybody from Dr. Dre and Eminem to U2 on the show and uh, the NWA reunion and every, you know, every rock band from like the first appearances of Godsmack and some of the down and even punk bands of Bad Religion on there. And, you know, it was just this really interesting TV show that 
the industry legend Jimmy Iovine and my old boss Andy Schoen from MTV had uh, done and put together this woman Audrey Morrissey who you know produces the voice and continues to do a lot of things and major things in television. Yeah, I mean, I was in this period of my life where I was still on the radio in New York from Los Angeles, but the Farm Club show uh, had ended, and I had to decide what my next move was. I always wanted to do A&R and sign bands for, and make records, you know? So um, the opportunity came up to be at Columbia Records, which was, uh, you know, the oldest record label in the world and one of the greatest, and... Uh, but I had been talking before that with a guy named David Massey, who still is out there running Arista Records, and he was a big A&R guy at, at Epic, who signed Oasis in the U.S., who was a British guy, you know. And so he had been talking to me about doing A&R, um, but it was a period when the boy bands were really big, and they were looking for somebody who was more interested in signing boy bands, not David, but his boss, a woman named Polly Anthony. So I had... That's why I had taken and moved to California and did the show farmclub.com. But when that ended, even though I was still on the radio uh, in New York, as I said, on K-Rock there, the alternative and rock station where Howard Stern was, um, I was ready to make a new move in my life. And so what I did was I went and interviewed. I found out the Columbia Records were interested in in hiring me as an A&R guy. And my, uh, you know, I was speaking to the head of K-Rock, who was, you know, friends with them as well. And I'm Steve Kingston, who had said, you know, he goes, yeah, what do, well, what do you want to do now? He goes, and you come back to New York, you can, of course, do the radio show from here. Um, so what? So I, so this was my opportunity uh, to do A and R and sign bands and make records. So I moved back to New York, and uh, I got back there, moved there just in time to move two blocks away from Ground Zero ten days before nine eleven. So wow, there we lost our home. <laughs> You know, that it was just a lot of insanity. But, you know, it, it was an incredible experience for me. So while I was in England, I took a trip to the UK. And I was interested in signing this band, who some people might call, like, Shoegaze. It was, they were an alternative band called Longview, who I signed. Put out one album. It was a top three album in the UK. This great hit called Further. And I was going to... I was doing, I was there to do two things. I was there, I flew to Manchester, England, you know, home of New Order, Joy Division, and, you know, Buzzcocks <laughs> and Happy Mondays and Stone Roses, all these great bands. And uh, I was there to, to see this band Longview and see about signing them for the US. And so I flew to Manchester and I ended up meeting up with a friend of mine there who was a guy named Alex Gilbert. And Alex Gilbert, uh, you know, went on to sign, you know, 1975's publishing in England. He was a British guy and a friend. And he um, also signed like bands like Biffy Clyro or Damien Rice. I mean, everybody that was on. But he signed Longview for this for the U, for the UK. And so he was there. We met a virgin train to head all the way down to London to see Coheed and Cambria, a band I ended up signing and working with because I went to England to figure I'd kill two birds with one stone, get to see them where there wasn't a, what they call A&R free feeding frenzy. We're like, you know, a ton of A&R <laughs> guys were trying to like sign a band all at once. I knew in America it was like crazy and hot. And that's why it'll be interesting when I get to the thing about the killers. So 
while we're on the Virgin train, English trains are notoriously late, right? But so we had quite the ride down. So we're sitting on the train, me and Alex Gilbert, my friend Pete Visvardis, who was a uh, international anarchist guy for Columbia. The three of us are there. We're having a couple of drinks and we're just talking. And, uh, you know, at this point, we've all the iPods. And Alex Gilbert looks at me and goes, hey, Matt, you ever hear of a band called The Killers? And I said, no, no, who are they? He goes, well, somebody gave me a CD while I was in at South by Southwest last year. He goes, they're great, man. He goes, you know, my boss wouldn't let me sign these guys, but they're going to they're going to put out like an EP on the small label called Lizard King. He goes, and uh, he goes, you got to check out the demos. So I put on the iPod. And the first thing I hear is smile like you mean it. And the minute I heard it, I looked at him and I went, I got to find them. I, <laughs> I want to sign these guys for the States. These guys are unbelievable. And then I heard Mr. Brightside. And then I heard on top, finally gotten in touch with the guys and was making a point. It took me a couple of weeks and found them, was able to reach out to Braden Merrick and at the time, their lawyer was Robert Reynolds, who's a manager now, right? Mm -hmm. Reynolds was a manager. And um, I said, look, I love the band. I want to come meet the guys and see them. So while this is all happening, I get an email at Columbia Records from the U.S. Army. And the email comes, and it basically says, uh, you know, Mr. Pinfield, we... Um, you know, you happen to, you know, mean a lot to a lot of soldiers and and people here in the military that watched you on MTV. And we are putting on a music mentoring program um, where soldiers returning from Iraq and Afghanistan and some that are stationed here in the States are going to be spending a weekend in Colorado City, Colorado. And we want to know if you would uh, you know, give be of service and give your time to the soldiers. Some of them, we, we you know, they warn me. Some would be wounded. Uh, some would have, you know, be crippled. Some would have limbs. Some would, you know, like it was just you know the horrors of war, as you know. Yeah. And um, I said, of course. You know, I wrote back and I said, yeah, I, I would love to. I'd be glad to. And so what they did was the U.S. Army booked me this trip, and I told them that they could book me one way. Because by this point, I knew that I needed to get down to Vegas to see the killers. So I went and I mentored the soldiers for a weekend. I spent this time with these soldiers and it really hit me hard to see, you know, these guys that have been of service and women that that have been wounded, and you know, uh, but also just their spirit and how music is the thing that can really raise you above anything and get you through things in your life. It really affected me, you know? And so the next thing that, you know, I did, as I had planned, I got in touch with the guys in Killer. Uh, at this point in time, I know it was just between myself and Island Def Jam where the band ended up mm -hmm. signing with, but it blew my mind that I'm like, what is, how do these people on ADR have jobs if they don't know the <laughs> hearing this for the first time that this band, is something special. I'm like, well, better. I'm, and I was like, you know what? That's their loss, whatever. Um, so after I got done 
with that weekend of mentoring, it was Monday, I uh, I flew into Vegas. And Braden Merrick and Robert Reynolds had picked me up at the airport. I told them how much I loved the music. And they said they were going to take me to meet the band. And so we ended up going to Ronnie Venucci's parents' house. You know, it was his family's home. And uh, the band had, was rehearsing in the garage. And when I got there, they had this incredible spirit. Uh, this incredible youthful spirit and they were really excited that I'd come out and went into the garage and you know it blew me away that here I am when I tell people now that I saw the killers do Mr. Brightside and Smaller Community in their garage it was incredible so I got there and I walk into the house and then we go I go into the garage the guys are all set up and uh, they play they knew I loved Smaller Community so they played that for me they played Mr. Brightside on top. And they said to me, hey, we just wrote this new song called Midnight Show. And so they played that for me as well. And we talked. And I said, you know, guys, let's let's go. I want to take you guys off to dinner and hang out. And so, you know, that's what we did. And uh, during the whole dinner, it was like, you know, we were all out there. A couple guys had come from the East Coast. I'm sorry, the West Coast offices in Santa Monica, Columbia Records. But I think, you know, uh, Brandon's older brother, you know, and everybody had kind of been familiar and watched me on TV and were fans of either 120 Minutes or just things that we've done there. And uh, so a lot of the dinner was really interesting because my memory is that the guys wanted to know about a lot of their heroes, what they were like. Yeah. And the irony is that they eventually ended up meeting all those heroes, collaborating with some of them. Yeah, and yeah. of course, being on the same level as they are. <laughs> so that's the beauty of it, you know, really. And uh, so, you know, we had this incredible time. Um, so the next thing, you know, like, you know, the dinner's ending. I did not rent a car. Um, I was staying. I'm almost positive it was a Las Vegas Hilton, if I remember correctly. It wasn't a super fancy hotel. It was down in the old part of the strip. And... Um, you know, this is where I found out that the guys in the band were, you know, were doing, had been doing jobs that up to, even at this point where, you know, you would expect kind of in Vegas, you know, like Brandon being a bellhop and, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, one of the other guys working at one of the wedding chapels and then one of the other guys running urine for like sporting events so they could get tested for <laughs> steroids. Yeah. Um, you know, these are the things that guys were doing as you would when you're young guys and your band, you know, has not um you know, you know, made the inroads yet that you know you want to make. You still have that rock and roll dream. But at the end of the dinner, I was like, hey, is there anybody that could drive me back to my hotel? And uh Brandon volunteered immediately and said, Hey man, I'll I'll give you a ride. <laughs> so we got in his car, it was an AMC, and uh one of the things I noticed right away that even in this point of CD player in his car, because of course, you know, they didn't have a lot of money and, you know, like anybody else when you're young and, you know, you, you're, you know, you're driving a used car and you're doing your thing, but he did have two cassettes sitting right there, which were the Beatles help and the Beatles 1962 to 1966. <laughs> I said, Oh dude, I love the Beatles. He goes, what do you want to hear? And, you know, we had a couple of drinks, maybe, not a, not an amazing, not a massive amount, but we did a couple of drinks and we uh, 
And he go, he goes, what do you want here? And I go, what's this going to help? So we're driving down, <laughs> which isn't far. And he and I are singing top of our lungs. We're singing help. The night before, you got to hide your love away. And then another girl, I think, was the fourth song, because I think that's the order of the original U.S. album. And then we got there, because it's not a long drive, you know, from the restaurant where we're to the strip. And uh, we went in. It was, remember, it's a Monday night, so pretty quiet time in Vegas on a Monday night. And uh, we go in and we sit at this bar. That We walk in this door and there's a bar in the right. And I say, hey, man, do you want to have a little drink and just hang out for a bit? And he goes, yeah, let's do it. And we sit there and we start to talk about life in general. He starts asking me some more questions about what that whole experience was like working with the soldiers. And then he, uh, we talk a little bit about what's going on in my life and going through a breakup and, you know, just, you know, like life changes and things that are going on in that period of time. Uh, you know, some people might have called it a midlife crisis. It really wasn't, but it was just, but there were certainly things in my, there was a lot of, you know, I was going through change and we had a good, really good time. And I just immediately loved them. And, you know, I go home, I mean, I go up to my hotel room and I get on a plane the next day and I leave Vegas and go back to New York City. And about two days later, I had a call from Brayden. He says, hey, Matt, Brandon wrote this incredible song about you. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? He goes, yeah, he, you inspired this song that Brandon wrote. You, you wrote this song. I go, are you kidding me? I go, it's amazing. When can I hear it? He goes, well, they haven't recorded it yet. Right? But uh, <laughs> if they do, um, you know, we'll, we'll let you hear it. And uh, And that song turned out to be all these things that I've done, which is just why I named my book after it. And there's a chapter in the book about that. Uh, that but um it was just an incredible incredible experience you know and i can you know i was so into the band that i had the show on k-rock you know the station one of the biggest stations in new york city and it was a sunday night show called the buzz where i could bring on it brought on a lot you know everybody from you know like everybody came in some would perform live some would uh you know just do interviews and it was a new music show every week that was on um and it was because, of course, I was working a full-time job, so I couldn't do five days a week. I mean, they had offered me that job to do five days a week when they flipped from classic rock to alternative while I was at MTV. But, of course, you know, with all the hours I had shooting, and I originally was one of the, you know, managers of music programming that I picked the videos at MTV in mm -hmm. the 90s. So um, I, you know, could only do a part-time show, but it was a show that was really important to me, close to my heart, because I was there exposing new music. Well, I was trying to sign the band. It was getting very close. They were getting courted very hard by Island Def Jam. And um, where Columbia, it was just like me and, you know, my assistant. It was interesting because, you know, Columbia was, it was, a, it was kind of a different situation where everybody at Island Def Jam was really courting them. But, you know, it, it was a toss up between both labels for a while because certainly the band and I had built a great relationship in a short period of time. Uh, they were in town, and Island Def Jam were trying to close the deal. And the one time, and they, they've said this before, like their old A&R guy, Rob Stevenson, and they are Cohen and those guys, said, yeah, the one time we, we couldn't stop them from coming into K-Rock and playing. So they did acoustic versions of Mr. Brightside and Smile Like You Mean It, hmm. which exists somewhere on the CD, which I hope to find again one day. But I will um, somewhere in my storage units 
But um, they came in and performed. I had them on the air before they even had a deal, you know? Um, And it was getting very close. And they were going to come in and meet with Will Botlin, who was our president, and Donnie Einer, who was our chairman, uh, on a Friday. (laughs) And on Thursday night, uh, Lear Cohen had brought them up. uh, You know, Lear, of course, started Def Jam with Rick Rubin and uh, Russell Simmons. He, and I've got a lot of respect for him, of course. And, you know, I'm friends with Rob Stevenson. So I've always been, you know, it's an interesting point I make in my book, too, when I talk about the killers. It's like, you know, people are like, when they ended up signing with Island Diffin, they're like, you're still, how can you be, how can you be nice to those guys or friends? And they didn't somebody. I'm like, because I wear more than one hat. I am <laughs> a person who loves music and also has to, t- it turns people on to music. And, you know, I was also doing, you know, starting to do Sirius XM when it was just Sirius. It was serious. So I was doing all these things. Uh, and I, you know, of course, I love the guys. But I I called them on Friday morning and said, hey, guys, hey, what time are you coming over to the label? <laughs> they're like, Matt, we, we're sorry, man. We we love you, man, but we got some bad news for you. We we apologize. But it just you know, Island Death Chip and gave us an offer that we can refuse, which is exactly what they did because Lyric Cohen literally put those guys in a limo and brought them up to his uh, groundstone and said, what do I have to do to be in the killer's business? Anything, you know, anything you guys want. Mm-hmm. It's hard to turn something like that down. Uh, they wanted to close that deal before they got a chance to get over and meet with uh, Donnie Einer and Will Bowen. Um, And that's where that landed. But what's really interesting about it, too, is that Congratulating them. I congratulated Rob Stevenson. Uh, and then I took the guys out to dinner, which nobody could believe that I did. Like I took them out for this place. It was down on first and first Avenue and between first and second street. It was like this Hawaiian luau type restaurant. <laughs> you know, it's just like it was down in the like area, not too far from where I lived on the lower east side of uh, New York City. I took the guys out to congrat, you know, to congratulate them and just wish them the best because, and that, there, that's why the relationship's still there. Um, yeah, and why I did the Sam's Town, um, you know, album premiere for on the Def Jam, you know, because like I said, I wear different hats and I did that, and you know, I was there doing a video coverage thing with Lou Reed and and the band and with Brandon when they did Tame Lies, um, and that was because of the relationship that we had, you know, and I remember having the guys on uh, my show. I did a show for Mark Cuban for four years on HDNet before it became Access TV called Sound Off with Matt Pinfield. Yeah, it was just this amazing thing. You know, I just truly believed in the band in, in a big way. And, you know, getting back to all these things that I've done to know that, you know, I inspired a, one of the greatest bridges in music history, and rock history. I've got soul, but I'm not a soldier. Because I was mentoring the soldiers and I wasn't a soldier. The fact that that inspired that phrase is, and what what I consider to be one of the greatest bridges in rock history, (laughs) uh, you know, it's, you know, like I joke, I go, maybe I didn't get the deal, right? And, you know, Hot Fuss did sell a lot. So I'm sure it did a lot for Rob Stevenson's kids' college funds. But I did, but I did get a great song out of it. And that's something that's lifelong, you know, that's really important. Yeah, and you know, and, I, and a long term friendship uh, with the band, and uh, you know, to one of the great things I got to do was 
now it's called iHeart for Clear Channel. Well, they were the partners with Live 8, not Live 8, of course. That was years before in the 80s. But in 2005, it's multiple concerts around the world. The best lineup happened to be the one that was taking place in Hyde Park in London. You know, it opened with Paul McCartney fronting U2 doing Sgt. Pepper. And then, you know, everyone played from like Coldplay with, you know, with uh, Richard Ashcroft getting up and doing Bittersweet Symphony with them and everything from Madonna to The Who and The Killers, of course, were on that bill. And one of the most beautiful moments ever was actually standing on the side of the stage, looking out at the people while they have a London choir singing the bridge with them to all these things that I've done. And a hundred thousand or more, maybe 150,000 people singing along with them. And I think that started from that night with Brandon at that yeah. empty sidebar at the Las Vegas Hotel. It was an absolute beautiful moment, you know? Wow. One of those things yeah. that you just never forget. Yeah, that's a that's a crazy story. We can't, just, can't put a price on that for sure. We just covered Hot Fuss and, and wrapped it up. We're just kind of going through song by song, and that's that's my favorite song on the album. As a it has a lot of implications to growing up where we grew up. We we went to high school with Brandon in Utah before he left, and your story there coming in. It just uh, it's really really a special song to to me, and I think to a lot of Killers fans. So for you being the inspiration there, we we're uh, happy you went to to lunch and. And tried to sign him there. Yeah, it just, uh, it was a beautiful thing. I mean, I, like I said, it was an incredible experience. And, you know, I knew from the beginning, guys, that there was something unbelievably special about the band. It had all these elements of things that I thought that I loved about rock and roll music and alternative music. And what just like the ultimate, what was just great and cool at the same time it had all those elements and of course you know when they were starting out you know they you know the the live thing they didn't have worked out yet but i i my thing was was interesting they did a showcase at a place in new york city called don hills and i know a lot of agents were down there and some of them saw them said a couple said yeah i'd love to sign those guys i heard one agent go uh i don't know about this man and i thought i said to this agent uh i said you know what I go, a band can always get better live, but they can't always be great songwriters. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The, all, and and I, plus they, they just, it's because they hadn't played out that much yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they played out. But I saw them get better and better all the time. And I saw them, I would take people to see them in New York and they'd be third down on the bill. <laughs> and, you know, the bands that they opened for aren't even around anymore. And they might've been, Hot in the press for two minutes. <laughs> Just, yeah. I was like, I I would explain to people. I go, the Killers have incredible songs, and Brandon Flowers' voice is amazing. And you know, uh, Mark killer bass lines. Mm-hmm. Dave's guitar playing was incredible, and Ronnie Venucci would have put what an incredible powerhouse of a drummer. I uh, just thought they. I always believed that they really had the goods. And then when they delivered Hot Fuss, it was the promise was shown to everybody just how great this band was. And then I watched them improve live because like I said, it was because they were still finding their way as a live band. And now of course, they're one of the greatest live performing bands in the world. Brandon is truly a megastar and he can command an audience like the greatest singers of all time, like the Bowie's and the Freddie Mercury's. He can get up there 
and he's a true showman. And um, for me, that's the beauty of the whole thing. Besides the fact that I got that incredible song out of the situation, they rose to their promise in every way. And so, you know, there's I just got so many great different memories with uh with the guys over the years, and I and I love them. And like I said, we've hung out quite a bit. And um, you know, it was, you know, like pretty amazing that uh how you know kind they were, you know, through through a lot of different things. And when I got hit by the car, you know, this crazy experience happened December 3rd, 2018. I was crossing the street here in Hollywood. It was just getting dark, but it wasn't it was still light out. And um I wasn't wearing, you know, like I wasn't it was a very pretty well it was a completely well lit area. I mean it's it's Hollywood, right? <laughs> um and uh a woman ran into me in her car. Like she I remember mean, a woman I was crossing the street. I got to the third lane, imagine a four lane road. And you're like, Hey, it's, I remember it being unusually quiet for a main drag in Hollywood and go, wow, a little quiet tonight. I look <laughs> left, look, look right, get to the third lane. And then all of a sudden I see a car gunning at me out of the corner of my eye. Wow. And all I could do was react was to jump, you know, mm -hmm. and jumping saved my life. I, my leg snapped in half. Uh, and then within a split second, my head went through her windshield up into the air, into her car. She did not break until I went through her windshield. So she was obviously texting or not looking or distracted, whatever it had to be. Uh, um, and uh, it happened so fast that all I remember is jumping out of there, flying over the hood of the car. Hadn't even realized my head had gone through it. My head was completely torn open. And so... I landed about 25 feet away. I flew through the air, like in an adrenaline shock. And I landed gratefully on the side of the street, not in the middle of the road where I could be run over twice. Mm. And um, I just remember being there and my ex-girlfriend at the time, you know, I didn't want to alarm anybody else in my family. She was the only person I could think to call. And she was out of town, but I called her and told her what happened. Didn't know I was going to die laying there. I mean, I was so unsure of what was going to happen. I just knew there was commotion around me. And luckily there were people out on the street because they found my phone. Tell you something though, guys, you've probably heard the story. They don't ever find your shoes after you get hit by a car. Shoes always disappear, you know. <laughs> I never oh, found my shoes. But hey, I hope somebody who needed them ended up. <laughs> and I'm sure they did in, in LA because there's a major amount of homeless people. So I hope we kept somebody's feet warm. But um could have been 100 feet away at that point, I guess. Yeah, but I was just so grateful to be alive. I got in that car. I got it. They, they finally picked me up on a tarp. They were afraid to do any more maternal injuries. They had no idea what was going on. But what I could not see was that my head was completely torn open, and there was glass in it and blood gushing out of my head. My ear, one ear was hanging off, which is, uh, i got to give the credit to Cedar Sinai Hospital for sewing that ear back on. My body was rejecting glass for months, little shivers of glass that they could, didn't get or couldn't see. But, uh, you know, eventually the EMS people came nine minutes later. My luck. At one point, I literally tried to lift myself off the ground and then realized that my, my leg was like a pretzel. And I couldn't do anything. Um, but uh, thank God there were no mirrors around. So or I would have probably gone into worse shock. Yeah. Seeing what I look like. So picked me up they put me in the vehicle and they said uh mr pinfield can you feel it cut off all my bloody clothes they stuck morphine in my arm 
they covered me with like a something, you know, whatever kind of gown they had in, in the in the ambulance and said, um, Mr. Pinkfield, can you feel your toes? You gotta remember that my I have a compound fracture on one leg, so it's split in half, you know. Wow. Which meant the nerves could have been, you know. And I just said to them, I tried to wiggle my toes. And I could. And that was miraculous, you know, that wow. I <laughs> could still actually move my toes. And they said to me, Mr. Pinkford, you're an absolute miracle. Most people who were hit like you were are either paralyzed or dead or brain dead from brain swelling. Uh, that's all I heard. Eventually, I uh, I was conscious, but I was by this point, the morphine started to work on me. It took me to Cedar Sinai Hospital. Uh, the crazy stories that I got there and I heard I, my face was taped up, but I could hear two doctors talking. And one goes, are you going to use staples on his head? And the other one goes, no, man, I watch this guy on MTV. I'm a rock fan. I'm going to sew up slowly. So <laughs> they, they sewed my thing up slowly. And as painful as it was, this guy tried to keep me calm by talking to me about rock, about awesome. music. And uh, nonetheless, you know, I, it took me eight months to walk without uh, a walker and a cane. I had to go through serious physical therapy, but I never stopped going to shows. <laughs> so this is the next thing that I'll tell you. When I got out, I was in two hospitals. First hospital was Cedar Sinai, famous, well, you know, incredible hospital in Los Angeles. Second one was called the California Rehabilitation Institute. And it's like, you know, it's almost like what you see in those war movies where the guys have like sitting there and having to go through all the physical therapy and those mm -hmm. rooms and I was doing that. I was I was living in the hospital for a little short period of time, and uh, when I got out, man, I got right back into doing my radio shows, you know. And um, I went to the Chris Cornell Memorial concert, and the next concert I was going to was the uh, iHeart Radio Alter Ego concert, and the Killers were one of the headliners. It was a Killers Muse, and um, you know, uh, I just remember. When I got there, you know, they had to, I was on a walker and, uh, you know, the killers put me, of course, on the list for that. And, uh, you know, I went there and I remember Tom, seeing Tom Morello and just seeing the, the look on his face from rage and audiously, just like he was, I could tell he was just so worried about me, you know, like <laughs> you survived, you know, and we had a talk. But the thing that was amazing was uh, that night was a beautiful night for me because I went back and hung out with uh, with the boys, and you know, I could, there's pictures that exist out there of me and Ronnie and and Brandon. That actually, or if you go and Google the whole accident and the story about the song uh, on you know through Yahoo Music, you'll see a picture of the three of us backstage that night. And um, I remember some of the guys here like, dude, we want to see those pictures because I, you know, I, I was like, guys, I couldn't believe when they they took a photo of me. You know, I, I was brought into the hospital. Uh -huh. Not only were I bring on, but what I look like. And man, the picture, I look dead. And I look, my head split open, guys. It was wow. so wild, that photo. So much so that when TMZ, they, TMZ likes what they, <laughs> they, uh, they, they like me. So they were like, all, all week when they're this and everybody else, and they were going, Bitfield's so brave. He's a, you know what I mean? He's got such a positive attitude, which is true. Cause you know, when you go through something like that, they send a psychiatrist in every day. Jostle wow. a bit, say, are you suicidal? How do you feel? What's going on? And uh, it was, it's a crazy time. But you know, my friends rallied around me. It was, it was, it was unbelievable. I had unbelievable love and support. And so, I'm backstage and hanging out with, with Brandon and Ronnie, and we're just talking. And I go out there. I, I literally walk out there with Brandon and those guys right before they get Brandon. Brandon sorry, 
and before right before they go on stage, Brennan uh, and I and I walk over and I watch the show, you know, Morello and Muse guys and everybody's there. And then Brandon dedicates all these things that I've done to me that night, which was really a beautiful thing on stage that evening. And my phone starts, well, here, Brandon, dedicate the song to you. Just, <laughs> I didn't realize I'm right there, you know, like <laughs> stage people, but it was great. It was a beautiful moment. One of those things that comes full circle. So, yeah, we'll definitely know, link to a, to that YouTube clip on in our in our show notes so people can see it. We've seen yeah. that. It's it's an awesome thing. You know, I look back on it all, and I uh, I think it's pretty amazing. I've always loved the band. You know, it's funny. One time we were, Brandon was up getting ready to do some stuff for solo, uh, for some of the solo things. And we were talking, and I was telling him how much I loved Sawdust, you know. <laughs> and I go, dude, it's, I go, Brandon, it's one of the best B-side records ever. He goes, not as good as the Oasis one. <laughs> like, Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's humble about that, you know. You know what I mean. I mean, it was just like because yeah. he loves. He's just uh, he's great. But I go no, no, man. I think there's some great stuff on there. And I always remember like bringing them on stage at Central Park Summer Stage one year, and uh, them doing all the pretty faces. And I was man, I love that song so much. And I remember Brandon saying, "I go, man, I love all the pretty faces because yeah, sometimes I think I should have put that on Hot Fuss, you know." Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, Cause that's like one of my favorites. I was literally driving my girlfriend. We were the other day, and we we're, I was playing. We were listening to Sawdust in the car, and Under the Gun. I just, I loved, and her and I are singing it, <laughs> you know, and uh, and because uh, it's so good, and uh, yeah, all those tracks. So, I uh, got nothing but love for the guys, you know. So at the end of your uh, the last chapter in your book, it's called Coda is Rock Dead. You say. I'm not prepared to write the eulogy for something that still has a beating pulse. So I was wondering, what? how do you see the killers fit in today's music landscape? I see them fitting in every way. It's just, they become a band that stays absolutely vital and strong because they have an incredible history and they've been able to show that their longevity and their, and their duration, but they are their own incredible entity. I mean, the thing about the killers are a band that you know it's the killers no matter what direction they've gone in you know whether it's the shift they took in sam's town you know what i mean or mm-hmm. or the next shift you know with a and h you know for them whatever they decide to do it still has that killer's imprint that's one of the things that i think their fans like myself and i love them for the chances that they've taken different things they did they've done on different records and rock is certainly not dead you know especially when you know, you may not see a lot of it in mainstream pop because I, I, I believe that has to do with the consolidation of of radio. I think radio still drives, even though peer-to-peer is so important, playlisting, and young kids don't listen to radio like they used to. There is still an amount of influence that radio has and always will have. And I think, unfortunately, when, uh, t- when Bill Clinton signed the Telecommunications Act that meant that you know, a, you know, a million stations can be owned by three or four companies. And look, I work for one of them or two of them. So like, you know, I, <laughs> but, you know, I'm not, I'm not naysaying these people, but I will say this. I think that pop is, is in a, a totally different direction. I'm not saying it's all bad either. There's some good stuff. And then, you know, <laughs> I think all music has been like that. It's uh, there's always great stuff in, in most genres. 
of music, uh, depending on what your taste is. And of course, it's all subjective to what you really like. Uh, but I believe that there's always good music coming out. Um, uh, and you just have to look harder for it because there's so much more noise out there on the horizon, you know? <laughs> there, there's just, you have to dig deeper. But, you know, there are, I wish more bands would take more pages from a band like The Killers, like Walk the Moon did, who, who were very, uh, admittedly loved The Killers so much. And when they, you know, Nicholas and his guys put out Anna's Son, there was a feel of that song on their first album that got them signed that was so from their love of the killers and and there's so many other bands like that but i but there's i wish a lot more people would uh kind of reach back and look at great songwriting <laughs> you know <laughs> hot fuss is a great place for those people to start you know besides beatles bowie and you know i mean there's a million artists that i love but you yeah. know yeah. it always goes back to the beatles doesn't it it always does um you know and you know other people from other generations will say elvis before that and elvis certainly was one of the most important artists in history and was unbelievable. But for me, that it, you know, and my general starts with the Beatles. And for my daughters, I started them with the Beatles too. You know what I mean? It's so funny. <laughs> I told Paul McCartney that my, you know, Paul McCartney's so cool. He's, I've done some album specials with him and I'm friends with Ringo because Ringo lives out here in LA. And Ringo and I got to know each other through a whole group of guys that I hang out with and became friends. And he told me some great Beatles stories. But, um, you know, <laughs> and stories, you know, just everything. But, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, it's funny, you, say, you know, you say we all we all love the Beatles. And I've told Paul McCartney more than once, like, yeah, you know, when my oldest daughter was uh, young, the first thing I played for was the Beatles. And then I turned my youngest daughter onto it. And I remember I was doing uh, an album special with McCartney. Probably, I'm trying to guess what year, maybe 2013, 12, 14, I, for his album called Me. And it was the only two interviews he was doing for radio with me and Howard Stern. That was it. That's all he was going to do. And they were going to use my interview for a ton of other uh, outlets, right? <laughs> we're we're in the office at NPR. And at that point, I was on the Board of Governors of the Grammys in New York. So I was at my Board of Governors meeting. And then I'm like, guys, I got to leave early. Go interview Paul McCartney. I'm like, oh, that's all right. That's all. <laughs> so I remember seeing Paul. And he remembered me from when we had met in 1999. And was one of the only artists I was ever afraid to meet, you know, because if he had not been nice to me, it would have been devastating. He's a Beatle. And he was more than nice in our first conversations that we had. And then, you know, he remembered me and I told him, we were just talking about it. And he goes, uh, and then the, the engineer at NPR, because NPR was just the studio we used. It wasn't for NPR, but it was just the studios we used. And I remember the engineer turning around and going, looking at Paul and going, do you ever get tired of hearing that? And Paul just looks at him and goes, no, I never get tired. <laughs> Which was really cool, uh, you know? Paul having your having my back. And at the end of that conversation, I remember when we left that day, Paul McCartney goes to me, Matt, if uh, it wasn't my wedding anniversary to Nancy, you and I'd go to the pub and have to talk more about rock and roll. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, just and I have that actually. It's funny. I have it on the raw interview, you know, because the tape was, or this, the file was still rolling. It was on paper. <laughs> And, uh, you know, but that's my thing, you know, I, um, the killers will always have this incredible place in my heart. Um, it's still one of those things that blows a lot of people's minds when they, cause there's still people still finding out their origins of all these things that I've done. And that's mm -hmm. why I thought it was so important to name my book after it. Um, and, uh, 
it's uh, and it was oddly enough the the um, you know the the editors over at at Scribner and Simon and Schuster, which are of course two of the biggest and best publishers of books in the world, my idea. They wanted to name it that. I thought that was genius. So they they thought it was a great thing. It was. Uh, he said we were going to suggest that you name the book that, <laughs> and I believe them. And uh, you know so. Uh, but you know that's it, guys. It's just uh, you know I consider um, that chapter of my life not to be over because I'm still friends with the guys and um, yeah. and again love them and man just you know like I said like how many bands that have come out in the last like you know say twenty twenty two years like them I guess so far in the century that are like come out in the rock or alternative world that can fill stadiums around the world mm-hmm. and can command an audience so that, the, you know, I always thought it was a thing about Bowie and Freddie Mercury and Steven Tyler, different rock people that were so important. Um, something that makes you feel like if you're in that last row and you're a kid and it's the first time you've seen rock or music, a live band, there aren't many artists who you can say will make that kid feel like they're that front man and that artist is speaking to them. And mm-hmm. because of the way that Brennan has become such an incredible performer, that all-inclusive crowd thing that he does and really does what unbelievably well and has for quite a long time, um, I have to say, you know, it's a pretty amazing thing. And I also remember it was funny, you know, like I just love that there was a moment where me and Brandon and Lou Reed, you know, who I know they looked up to and they got to do it with Lou. And, and I remember Lou going, Lou and Brandon talking about me while I was sitting there. It was funny. And Lou goes, Brandon, and Lou, you know, didn't like a lot of people. You know, you, it's, it's you know, it's well documented, <laughs> especially people in, jur- in journalism. But Lou, Lou took a real liking to me, which I was very grateful for because I was a big Bell Underground League fan. And he goes to Brandon, he goes, you know why I like, you know why I like Matt? Because Matt's trustworthy. And Brandon goes, and I remember that line. I'll never forget it. And I'm probably forgetting some stories. I mean, there's 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 many more because the killers have always just been had open arms and such a great friendship for all these years. And I just uh, I love the guys, always rooting for them. Uh, I remember finding out that uh, Matthew Gray Goobler from uh, who played Doctor Spencer Reed on uh, Criminal Minds, yeah, was their friend and directed you know on the Christmas videos and. And I was a fan of the show, so I heard that from mutual killers friends. I'm like, dude, I want to hang out with that guy. And then they called <laughs> him. Uh, he got a phone call from like one of the friends of killers, and he goes, "Dude, I watch. I love the 120 minutes. Let's meet." So me and him met like at some closed bar and just hung out and talked about music. But it's another killers connection. Yeah, yeah. Have you had a Have you had a chance to listen to Pressure Machine much? The new album. Yeah, I, I love it. What do you guys think? I mean, it's about our hometown, so so we're pretty biased, but. Uh, <laughs> It, it talks a lot about, um, well, not a lot, but brings up like opioids and stuff like that. And uh, your journey, you've, you've uh, talked about overcoming addiction and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it also has some some Springsteen type roots and Brandon kind of goes in a different direction than uh, how we traditionally have heard him. I was just kind of wondering your thoughts on the whole pressure machine and, and all that kind well, of stuff in there. What I do love about what Brandon's done um, in using Springsteen as a strong template, you know, being me being from New Jersey, and having, you know, grown up listening to Bruce, and also 
having had Bruce do something incredibly nice for me, kind for me when, um, you know, when I was going to work at, you know, leaving this radio station that I ran on the Jersey shore and I went to MTV, he unknown to me called the heads of MTV told me, he said, was like, you know, he's not part of the corporate world. You guys look out for him while he's over there. He's got a good soul, a good heart. The fact that Springsteen endorsed me like that, you know, one of those guys that you would, you couldn't pay him to say anything that he didn't mean from his heart. <laughs> Blew me away. You know, I mean, I was, I was absolutely blown away. And then I totally for, thought he'd forget about me. And then he asked them about me when he was rehearsing for his rock and roll hall of fame addiction. They stopped in to see him over at Sony studios and, he said, Bruce, what's up? And he goes, guys, take care of Pinfield. I heard this. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, man, I thought he'd forget about me. I'm gone from Jersey Shore. No, but, you know, I waited seven years to thank Springsteen when when and Bruce was bringing his uh, rising album to Columbia Records. And uh, I listened to the whole album. They had the lyrics there. And I walked up and I thanked him. And he goes, oh, man, don't worry about it. And he goes, well, what do you think of the album? He was great. I mean, I just I love him. And I like answering your question that he's Brendan's taken a page from Bruce's, you know, creative book and applied that in his own life because of what he's seen and lived in Vegas. And actually, you know, writing about where he's from. I love the fact that Bruce Springsteen was always proud of being from New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey, right? And I love that Brandon is proud of what's going on, you know, like proud of Vegas and like to paint a picture and, you know, and, and talk about things that are happening there and create characters um, and experiences from Vegas. I think that's such an important thing. Um, and the opioid thing is insane. You know, I'm just glad, you know, I have been sober as we do this podcast two years and eight months. Um, you wow. know, and I did also, you know, you know, obviously, you know, I did cocaine and whatever speed. I just did, you know, I was a club DJ for years, an alternative club DJ. So, I mean, I wasn't looking for things to make, knock me out or make me, you know, a zombie. I was looking for things to wake me up. You know what I mean? So if people, you know, and, and plus you got to remember, I started that in the 80s. So like, people were like, cocaine's not addictive. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> that's seriously what they said. It was like people wearing like, razor blades around their neck. And then you find out years later, yeah, it is. <laughs> you know? Yeah, a bit. Um, uh, so, but it was, you know, so cocaine, alcohol, uh, both played a part in, uh, in my story. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been doing unbelievably well and being of service, helping out other uh, addicts and alcoholics. And I very, very immersed in the program. I, mean, I don't mention the program's name because that's part of our principles, but uh, people know what it's called, but that's the uh, program that I'm in. And, um, and of course, a lot of it, you know, certainly was done by the pharmaceutical companies themselves. We watched some of the documentaries that are out there. And then uh, all the illegal ones and just the way fentanyl is killing so many young people right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, a few comedians that died out here. I knew one of the guys who did not go out with them that night, a pretty famous comedian who uh, was in the program and took off and got, was using again and then the night before as deaths happened in LA, those comedians, he came back to all of us sober and clean dudes and uh, it saved his life, you know? Wow. So it's, um, I mean, it's no joke, man. Like 
drug addiction, alcoholism, but just the danger of uh, of doing things like that these days, you know? Um, I know, you know, young people can't always be told, you know, they, some people they want to find out for themselves. Speaking about why don't you find out for yourself? On the single, I just, you know, I just want to be out there to try and bring awareness and help other people that struggle, um, you know, I, like I said, I have two years and eight months. I, it's, you know, I'm 100% devoted to being clean and sober and to being of service to others to help other men and women recover from alcoholism and addiction. So uh, anytime, I, I like a lot of different things. And, you know, it's so funny, like it, it, there'll be different songs and then I'll get the interview and talk to uh, Brandon and go, I love that lyric about, you know, and like, <laughs> he, he always appreciates it. He goes, yeah, man, I love when you wrote that. You know, there are different things that we've talked about that are on different songs over the years. And I can't, I, you know, I can't remember right at the moment, but I know he always appreciates because I always pick out lines from songs because I'm a big lyric guy. I love lyrics. <laughs> Besides melody, I think lyrics, are, you know, growing up, I was always a, a huge lyric guy, you know, so. But, um, yeah. To me, the band still going strong, and I love them to death. And uh, you know, it's it's been a, it's been an incredible journey, and I'm just happy that I was part of theirs and then part of mine, and that our friendship remains, and uh, that there are fans out there of the band like yourselves who, you know, uh, whether you went to high school with them or or if you're like you know, in the Ukraine or somewhere that uh, that connects with their music because. Truly, they are one of the greatest, uh, greatest bands. And uh, like, it was just so funny. I'll never forget that whole thing where people are like, you're going to actually take those guys out. And I know what I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> and uh, and I'm so grateful, uh, you know, for all the great memories I have with the guys. And again, still, they're still killing it live and still making great records. And, and that's it. You know, that's kind of, that's my, that's my story with the guys, you know. We really appreciate your your inspirational story of of sobriety and even your your you know your battle back from injury, and uh, I love I love reading in your book about the killers, but also about you know your your stories of Coheed and uh, a band I really love, Acceptance. Who well, I love too. What a, what a great band. Who should have been huge. I love Acceptance. You know, I love that record to this day. Any EP that I, that. I licensed the militia group, the Black Lines of Battlefields EP. Um, uh-huh. I think they're a great band. Um, I'm glad they're back together. I'm glad Jeff came yeah. in the environment. Um, Me too. I love Acceptance. I love Coheed so much. I heard a story the other day, which is amazing, about how Post Malone had auditioned for Crown the Empire. They were friends of his, playing Welcome Home by Coheed. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> broke, and his string broke, so he didn't get the gig, but it worked out well for Post Malone. Yeah, he's doing all right. He's doing all right. Yeah, is that funny or what? That's cool. That's a great story. Um, you know, and the Bowie stories, of course. You know, we're we're recording this on Bowie's birthday, and my relationship with David Bowie is something that uh, um, was I've very cherished, and he really liked and respected me, and asked me advice, and that was surreal to a kid who grew up loving David Bowie to have this guy who, you know, you look to. And he and I had these conversations, like literally as far as this camera is from my couch, couch on couches across from each other, Bowie, Bowie having these conversations about what he meant in my life and how much he appreciated 
you know, my knowledge and, you know, and opinion. It was just, those are the beautiful things in life, you know? All I can say is I have nothing but gratitude for my relationship with the killers, gratitude for uh, the incredible experiences I've had um, in life, you know, and, and, you know, in my pursuit of the thing I've always loved the most, which is music, you know? Music has changed, uh, you know, it's the only thing that got me through and uh, gave me identity and everything else as a kid, you know, it just, I related to the music and that gave me the strength always. And, um, and I still think it's such an important part, even of my recovery, the music is, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's uh, music part of every day for me, you know, it's like, it's like air, it's like breathing, you know what I mean? I have to have it, it's oxygen, you know, so <laughs> yeah, it's good. Definitely power, power with music and uh, it can do a lot for a lot of people, so. Well, guys, thank you so much for doing this. And I really appreciate well, uh, it. No, thank you. And uh, we'll we'll try to keep in touch if that's okay down the road. Maybe have you back on in a year. Yeah, of course you can, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Well, for tonight and making a few minutes for us back in the year 2000 when a bunch of kids from Utah were on a California trip and we ran Were you guys – were, and you were out here? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you were doing Farm Club with a band okay. called Figure Four. Oh, that's so cool. And you guys came by. That's great. Yeah, you were out, out in front of Universal. We just swarmed you, man. You were the coolest <laughs> thing we'd ever seen. So, you know, thank you so much for saying that, guys. I appreciate it, man. You know, one really? thing, I, I love that, guys. That means the world because it's always so important, man. It's always important for people to be cool, man. I like I like people, especially young people, because you do it, you know. Nah, you pass it on. You know, you know, it's it's the most important thing. You know, I, I think that's a, a positive memory with us for, for decades now, so. Yeah, thank you for that, guys. And it was so good hanging with you guys today, man. Thank you for your love of acceptance, too. That means the world to me, guys. I love that band, don't you? Yeah. Isn't Phantoms a great album? Yeah, and I after they stopped coming out with albums, I, I had to look up the name of the singer to see if he had moved on to another band or something. And I also love the band Anne Berlin, which I think Christian from Accepted. Which, yeah, which Christian was in. Christian's been in, too. I love Christian's a great dude. Yeah. So Anne Berlin are great, man. And acceptance came out with some more stuff recently. It was just just so awesome to see. Yeah, I'm so happy. Patience had paid off. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad they got back together. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me on. I'm Matt Pinfield, and that's another episode of Down of Lonely Town.